0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I would like to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. And I want to say a special thank you to the Walter and Jean Bok Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing support to make this podcast possible. Today's podcast is about a topic that is very important in the lives of people with celiac disease, genetics. Close to 40% of the population in America carries these genes, but only 3% of them go on to develop celiac. Why would they do so? And we have lots of families who regularly ask us if they carry the genes for celiac if they should just go gluten-free to prevent getting the disease. Is this right? To help our listeners better understand genetic testing, I have Dr. Benny Kersner in the studio with me. Dr. Kersner is not only a leader in the global celiac community, but also the medical director of our program here at Children's National. Welcome, Dr. Kersner. I'm so glad you could join me.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. and these are truly important questions. We are asked about them with monotonous regularity, and they do cause considerable confusion. So I hope I can help clear it up, Vanessa. That's Um, great.
0: Let's jump right into it. Talk to me about genetic testing. Tell our listeners what is tested and how does it relate to celiac? Okay. Well, I want to step back and first
1: go through a little bit of how you get celiac disease, what actually happens chemically. And I think one way to look at this is to imagine that the body makes a mistake. It sees wheat as it might see an invader such as a virus. And what normally happens under those circumstances is the virus will get into a cell and the body then takes a portion of that virus and presents it to the immune system. There are cells dedicated to do so. And those cells present it through a chemical called HLA. And if you have a defect in that chemical, that allows for the wheat antigen rather than a viral antigen to, present to, to be presented to the immune system, which then takes off releasing chemicals that actually destroy the invader, but they start off by destroying the cells that the invader has entered in order to negate the problem completely. So, in order for the disease to occur, the presentation has to be defective. And that defective presentation is defined by two genes. One called HLA-DQ2, and the other called HLA-DQ8. In order to have this whole process occur, you've got to have those genes.
0: Do you have to have both of them or just one of them?
1: No, you need only have one of them, but the one is more powerful than the other. So if you have DQ2, you're more likely to get the disease than if you have DQ8. Moreover, if you have a double dose of DQ2, remember genes come in pairs. Uh, the pairs that get separated when when children are born and then joined to the you know the uh, partner's gene. But if you have a pair of the DQ2s, you have a much higher chance of getting the disease than if you only have one. And if you only have one DQ8, you have even less chance of getting the disease. But let's talk a little bit about the risk so if you take the general population depending on which population you look at uh, in some parts of the world like Denver Colorado up to 40% of people will be carrying those genes in many parts of the world it's closer to 30% now of those people who are carrying the gene only 3% Will actually develop the disease so carrying the gene makes it possible but there's got to be more that is happening to get this underway
0: so what is that more what what is that difference between the three and the
1: rest a, a very intensive debate right now and so here are some of the thoughts One is it's a virus, and if you look at wheat, the amino acid sequence in wheat, it resembles the amino acid sequence in some viruses, and the thought is if that particular person is infected with those viruses that are similar in some way to the toxic fraction of wheat, they're more likely to get it. We also know that there is an increased risk in relatives, Uh, first-degree relatives, It's considerably more than second-degree relatives, but both have an increased risk of the disease. So something in that family's environment is allowing them to acquire it. What could it be? Well, firstly, there are other genes, as many as 30 or 40, that are involved in the generation of the chemical sequence that leads to celiac disease. And if those genes are there in addition to the DQ8 or DQ2, you're probably more likely to acquire the disease besides that the environment influences what you eat what you eat influences the bacterial colony in your intestine the bacterial colony in your intestine signals your immune system and the way it signals the immune system can actually depress or actually increase the likelihood of an immune response so those are some of the factors that are being looked at right now as additive factors. But even then, those factors only increase the risk by about a further 3 to 5% over and above the background risk. But they do make a difference.
0: What about things like food poisoning or pregnancy? If you look at a lot of the online forums, people are tossing those around as very common triggers for people who are genetically susceptible to celiac. Do you know anything about that?
1: Um, I don't really know the answer to the question. It's a good one. Uh, you, you know, I, it, it's conceivable that any immune regulatory activity will set in motion a process that activates this. I think it's conceivable, but has it been proven? I don't know of papers that have done that. Pregnancy, again, I think it's very hard to be sure that that does it. What we do know is that there's been a suspicion that the ingestion of wheat during pregnancy or in the immediate period after pregnancy, uh, that there could be a critical period where the exposure to wheat sets this off that in recent time appears not to be true it was a popular theory just a few years ago but more recent um, you know uh, uh, statistics and um, population analyses don't seem to bear that out it's
0: great so
1: now I uh, just while we on that because I think it's relevant you have to have wheat to get the disease and you have to have had wheat for some time so in populations that introduce wheat Sooner, they're more likely to get the disease sooner. Uh, populations that are exposed to wheat later, like ours, wheat rice is introduced first, and then wheat, we tend to see the disease somewhat later.
0: I also thought it was really interesting when they were, when we were at the International Symposium in India, how they were showing the different regions of India where celiac is more common. It was in the areas where wheat was more part of the diet, but in areas of India where rice was the more common starch for people to eat, the rates of celiac were much lower simply because they're just not eating it.
1: Absolutely, and I think it just to reinforce that. It's remarkable that the highest incidence of celiac disease happens to be in a small area of West Africa where Mm -hmm. the gene is prevalent and the wheat consumption is very high. And they have a 5% incidence which is higher than Denver, Colorado or anywhere else.
0: Do we know of any population where the gene is not prevalent?
1: Well, we do know that in the African-American population it is less frequent. But we don't have available that I know of, good statistics, to show how much, how how, you know, to what extent it is less frequent. But um, all the indications are that it is not as common as in the European-derived population. But it is there, and it needs to be thought of and considered.
0: Great. So... Should a person change their eating habits if they find out that they are positive for the gene, but have not been tested for celiac?
1: Absolutely not. Um, Certainly, that should not be the reason why they change. Um, You know, and I do want to be clear about this. It will only confuse the situation if they change the diet in anticipation, and there is no way that looking for the genes makes the diagnosis of celiac disease. No matter what gene combination you have, it does not make the diagnosis. To make the diagnosis, we need to do serology, and some can debate whether we need a biopsy, but you certainly need to do more than have the genes. What's ironic and interesting, it's the other way around. The importance of the genetic testing is to show that you do not have the gene, because if you don't have the gene, you almost certainly don't have the disease. So, in someone who suspected they might have celiac disease is already on a gluten-free gluten diet, the gene becomes really useful because if you study that patient, they don't have the gene, you can tell them you almost certainly can go back onto gluten, at least as far as celiac disease is concerned. You might have a gluten sensitivity independent of celiac disease, but it is not celiac disease determined.
0: Great. Right. That's great. So now, if someone were to test negative for both of the genes, is there any possible way that they could still get celiac disease?
1: There is a suspicion, and that that is possible. Um, if you look closely at the gene, it's made up by alleles, uh, and it's, it's conceivable that the allele is there, that it is not situated in the gene portion called HLA and yet influences the way in which the gliden is delivered to the uh, immune system so one can postulate ways in which that happens and there appear to be cases that are genuine celiac disease that have the manifestations of the disease the serology of the disease and yet do not have the gene those are extremely rare and for practical purposes If you don't have the gene, you are not going to get the disease.
0: Got it. So I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about some of these at-home genetic testing kits like 23andMe. Um, as you know, we've talked about in our in our clinic, one of our staff members actually took the 23andMe test and it told her that she had zero risk for developing celiac disease, yet she had the serology and uh, biopsy confirmed celiac disease. So you know, how do we respond to that? And could someone use these at-home tests to really predict their risk of celiac disease?
1: At this time, we do not have sufficient data using those those kits and correlating them with the accepted tests to reach that conclusion. I would say right now it would be dangerous to rely on those kits to make a diagnosis. Great. I I have to confess, I don't know much more about those kits than that, but I do know that the standard methods have been carefully standardized, carefully analyzed and approved. And if you're committing to a lifelong diagnosis that is going to so drastically change your existence, and it does change your existence, surely we need to turn to more reliable methods. I would suggest to someone who got a kit which suggested they need to look at the disease to do so in a formal fashion and vice versa. Uh, If they want to know if they have the illness, please go through the formal channels for now.
0: So the bottom line is, if you are doing these at-home kits and it says that you have a risk for celiac disease, don't just go on a gluten-free diet, call your doctor and talk about it. Or, right. on, the con- on the flip side, if you think you're at risk for celiac, but these kits say that you're not, you should still speak with your doctor about it.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I have no doubt that's right.
0: So, how likely do you think in the future it will be that these genetic tests will be used as a preventative diagnosis tool?
1: I think for practical purposes, that's very far down the road. Um, I really think we... It's very hard to conceive of how a gene that is present in 30 to 40% of the population in the ways now understood will be used to, uh, you know, forestall the need for the diet or influence the diet without us going to more definitive testing. Uh, One hopes that it will make a difference. Where I think we really have advantage is that the more detailed information we have about the pathway that leads to the disease, in other words, the pathway that leads from the gene to the message from the gene to the proteins that ultimately regulate the production of the white cells, that ultimately destroy the cells in the autoimmune process, the more we know about that pathway, the more opportunities there are to interrupt it. And undoubtedly, if we look at other diseases, notably inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, learning about that pathway has yielded magical treatments, uh, you know, where a particular chemical given interrupts a particular step that obliterates the pathway completely i think that hope is there for celiac disease but it's going to be years before we get there and that pathway begins at the gene and goes down a sequence from there
0: so i want to talk about this in on like a more um practical level for parents with little kids so let's say mom has celiac disease and she has a baby should she get that baby genetically tested or just wait and see what happens as they introduce foods into their diet? What is the recommendation?
1: The recommendation is not to do genetic testing, but to wait until the child is three years old of age or becomes symptomatic in ways that suggest celiac disease, and at that point to do the serology, and if the serology is positive, to go on to do the biopsy, um, You know, we can discuss, there are different approaches to that in Europe and here, but certainly our approach relies heavily on the biopsy at that point. Uh, The gene is only used where we have confusion, frankly. So if we have a situation where someone's already on a gluten-free diet and we're still questioning the possibility of the diagnosis, that is the place to use the gene. Uh, If we have the rare situation where someone has serology that is confusing because they lack the ability to make the relevant uh, serum markers, notably IgA markers, we might want to use the gene to help us know whether we need to pursue it or not. But uh, generally speaking, we do not recommend gene testing uh, to screen for the illness.
0: Right. So when is a time in your clinic when you would recommend using the gene for a patient,
1: the gene test? Well, just as I said, quite frequently now, we see patients who come to us already on a gluten-free diet, and they want to know, do we need to continue this? And if we do the gene testing at that point, it's extremely helpful, because if it comes back negative, we can say you can certainly go back onto the diet if it comes back positive we can say to them there is a chance that you have celiac disease because of the people who are positive three percent more or less and it might be higher with particular combinations could have the disease so your option now is to go back onto the gluten-containing diet and after an adequate exposure, go through the serology and biopsy process to prove that you have it. But if you're doing well on the gluten-free diet and you're comfortable, you need to bear in mind that you could have the disease, but it is not yet totally proven. And at a later point, when your child challenges the need for the diet, you might then go through the formal process that leads to the traditional means of diagnosis.
0: You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to years before they removed the um, pre-existing conditions requirements from insurance, and, you know, we don't know where that's going today, but I remember times when we would have families who would say, well, I'd rather not have the confirmed diagnosis so that my child isn't labeled with it forever, so that it becomes a barrier to them.
1: Yeah. Um, I, 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 and, you know, and that, became, that was a concern, but... We, we really do need to have the diagnosis confirmed if it's there. The um, Insurance issues are separate, and hopefully we will resolve those in time as a as a country and community. But from a medical point of view, labeling someone as having celiac disease and having them conform to the constraints that are involved for life, uh, is a major commitment, and I, I don't know how to get
0: around, you know, definitively making the diagnosis. So the bottom line is that the gene test is not a definitive diagnosis, um, rather just a, an indicator of what may be.
1: Precisely. And it may occasionally allow you to say, we definitely don't have the disease, Absolutely. One other thing I might point out, Vanessa, that interpreting the results that is sent out can be very confusing um, because you might get a result that says there's a 25% chance that you're going to get it. Um, be careful as to how that gets interpreted because that chance is of you being one of the 3% that gets the illness. And thinking that there's a one in four chance that you're going to have it is maybe not altogether fair. Right.
0: Absolutely. It's a very, very good point. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for all of this great information, Dr. Kersner. It's absolutely fascinating, and I know that it will help our listeners better understand this important topic. I also want to say a final thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for their support today. And I really hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast, and we will talk to you again next time.